Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Sparks of Madness. Uh, this week I speak with Ian Peskett, who is um, someone, a comedian from Nottingham, or the Nottingham area, um, who I um, have only gigged with once. Um, I gigged with him once in Huddersfield a while back, um, but I was struck by his um, his style of performance and his openness in his performance about his own past, uh, which is what we talk about here. Now, we only talk for 45-50 minutes um, so we don't get into his kind of darkest stories moreover we tend to talk about um, the general issues he's had as an addict um, and as uh, someone who's been to prison more than once um, as we cover in the in the pod um, and yeah we t- just generally talk about his his kind of ability with words his openness his honesty how that informs the work he does working with addicts um, as a recovered addict himself, um, and how that affects the way he performs on stage, and really what he, why he does comedy, what he gets out of it. So I think it's, for me, it's a really pleasant conversation um, and quite uplifting. Um, and I, I have a feeling I might ask Ian back at some point to maybe talk about some of his darker issues in the past and 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 where he can perhaps sometimes find some humour from that, as he does in his, his stand-up set. So this is Ian Peskett. Um, I thoroughly recommend you go see him when uh, comedy comes back in a couple of months' time. Um, and uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Let us know what you think. Thank you. Welcome, then, to the latest episode of Sparks of Madness. And this week, I am talking to Ian Peskett. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? Hi Graham, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm a little scared. I'm a little excited. I'm a little bit tired, um, but generally comfortable. I think. Good. That sums okay. me up quite well. Very good. Okay. Um, so, um, you're someone that I have met, I think, once at a gig in Huddersfield, but I've heard a lot about yes. you from mutual friends um, or acquaintances. Um, and uh, I know you've got a lot you want to talk about today. So tell us a bit about yourself. How did you come to be in comedy and when did you start? Okay. Um, <clears throat> it was probably 2008. Uh, around that time, there was quite a lot of stand-up on Channel 4. They were, they were doing a lot of specials. Um, one of the ones that stood out for me around that time that was that was shown was Bill Bailey's Bewilderness. Uh, I was all struck. I mean, I've always had a passion for stand-up comedy anyway. I personally feel it's the last honest art form. Um, although we do bullshit a lot when we're on stage, there's that additional level of vulnerability and accountability that's also displayed in it, which I find endearing compared to all this reality TV show type bollocks that we're poisoned with on a daily basis. <laughs> I started writing a set around that time. Um, I didn't know what to do with it, where to go with it, how to access it or anything. Uh, one of At least one of the jokes that I wrote at that time did make it into the set that I still do today. Um and I mean, I was in prison at the time. Um, and so I was writing other stuff anyway. I was I was um, like trying to make sense of my emotional and mental state, having fallen off of the drugs into a clean environment, but massively sterile environment in the way that prison is. Um, so there was an escapism element to it, but then also tapping into who I was as a person at that time. I don't think I got any real answers because I continued doing stupid shit after I left prison that time. Um, but, but it gave me something to work with while I was under those conditions. <laughs> Years later, um, I ended up going to rehab and I got clean. And I remember seeing on Facebook an advert for the ultra comedy stuff. I don't know if people are aware of it. I don't know how far north it reaches, but it's the cancer research. We'll give you eight weeks for each training. You raise us some money and we you do a set. It was the Glee Club in Nottingham for me personally. And that was the first time I saw that. I think it was four and a half years ago. Um, and, I'm, cause, and, and I know that because I posted it on Facebook and I told everybody I was going to sign up for it and then I bottled it. And then three and a half years ago, it flashed upon my memories again. I thought, I'm going to do it this year. And I told everybody I was going to do it that year. And then I bottled it again. And then the year after that, I thought, you know what? Sorry, I'm going to do it. Like, caution to the wind. Let's see what happens. Primarily, it was just for me to challenge my own fear, for me to see if what I thought was going to happen actually would happen. I and mean, fear is something that I'll probably touch upon later in this. It's a massive thing in, in my life and, and the way that I um, approach my client base and all this other stuff. I think it's, it's a really important uh, subject to get to grips with. And so I challenged the idea and I did the, did the eight weeks training, which was beautiful. Um, 
I mean, around that time as well, I was going for a breakup. And I think it was between the first week of training and the second week of training, I ended up coming back to the house that I was living in with. I mean, she was kind of my ex-partner, but I mean, I was living with her. We'd been broken up for about five months. And you know how those kind of situations can get a little bit messy and complicated. And that that was the reality I was living in at that time. And <laughs> As it was, I came back on a Monday uh, Monday afternoon and find her in the house with another man and ask it's that I wasn't happy um I felt murderous angry betrayed uh, sensitive hypersensitive I think um suicidal at, at points um, I, I needed somebody to listen to me I did and I needed help and I needed it quickly I tapped into a few of my friends who were able to facilitate my departure from that house because that was my prime focus at that time and then I uh, went and cried on a friend's shoulder about it all and all this other stuff. And <clears throat> as it was, um, doing the comedy training and turning up week after week with this, this group of strangers, as was, I mean, like I say, I'd only met them twice, I think, at that point. Um, it, it gave me something to channel my attention into that was unrelated from every other aspect of my life at the time. But then also over the course of those weeks, I was able to process some of the stuff that I was going through. You know, we... You know yourself, you get up on stage and it's cathartic and we find it therapeutic being able to explore our personal issues in that forum. I, I think it's, it's a beautiful method of being able to come to terms with our own issues. And So so that's what it was. And then after the, I mean, I, the, the, I could only see the Glee Club uh, the 2nd of December 2018. That's what I was working up to in the eight weeks prior. That, that was the end for me. Uh, that's when I'd been able to say, yep, I've done it because that's all I was setting out to do. And as it was, there was a couple of people on the course who were setting up gigs and I got an invite and I went along and, and, and I was getting laughs. I was, you know what I mean? And I'm egotistical as fuck. And so that fed me a little bit. I enjoyed that stuff. I entered a gong show. I think it was the February, February 19. And I won it, which was beautiful. It was a massive boost for my confidence. And I felt like I'd got something. I felt like, you know, I'm included... Uh, part of there, there was elements of that kind of stuff in it um, but it, but it was nice you know going around places and meeting other people and having a shared passion and listening to other people's takes on life it, it was great so mm. that's kind of where I was at with it so um, that's a really good part of history it's a very detailed part of history um, what what struck me was you the twice you threw away a little comment about having been in prison um, first of all, it was when I, I was in prison at the time, and then it was I was in prison. I think that was that time you were in prison. So obviously you've been in prison more than once, and you just drop those little ones into the conversation. I don't know if that was deliberate or just natural to you. I sense it's natural. So clearly you, you're someone who's done time. What? How many times have you been in prison, and what for? Uh, ten, I think. Um, I've spent I've spent a grand total of about four and a half years behind a door. Um, so I've had two big sentences, the biggest being three years for supplying class class A heroin, as it was, back in 2001. Yeah, it was a week after the Twin Towers. I got arrested for that. Um, I got two year, eight months for burglary and a possession charge. And all the other stuff were petty infractions comparatively. Um, mm -hmm. Possession of bladed articles, possession of drugs, theft, breaching and non-custodial orders, non-payment of fines all kinds of public yeah. order offences, you know, that kind of stuff. If <clears throat> So, I mean, you're going to want to know how I ended up going down that line. That's fair enough. That's good because I like talking about myself. So buckle up. I'm all over that. <laughs> I think primarily, if we peel it really, really far back, growing up, I felt uh, disconnected from my own reality, my own existence. From the age of eight, I remember, I mean, I've... I've reflected on this stuff quite a lot over recent years and I think around about eight I found fear or fear found me and I became scared of people places um and I didn't like it I, I felt uncomfortable in my own skin and th this is a story that is is massively f familiar to me from other people that I've spoken to it is and, and maybe you'll identify maybe you won't to some degree or another so going through school I felt clunky awkward um, and I wanted to feel included. I wanted to feel connected, and I didn't know how to do that. Um, my stepbrother, when I was about 11, was smoking cannabis, and that appeared at that time to be the way in. Um, 
reflectively, I know it wasn't reflectively, I know it was a bullshit stance, but at the same, by the same token, it turned my give a shit switch off. Uh, and I had something, I had a passion. I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm not going to lie about that stuff. <laughs> and so if I look back at it from this position where I'm at today, I know that I had a void inside myself that needed filling. Um, it, it's a spiritual void is, is, how I've, is how I've come to reference it, how I've come to understand it. Um, and so I'm always trying to find something outside of myself to fill it, and it never worked. So be that drugs, be that crime, be that relationships. Some people, it's gambling, shopping, whatever, choose your poison. It's the same principle. <laughs> um, and, and also some of the behaviour that I was engaging in I find exciting I felt alive um, so running around yes shoplifting it's schoolboy stuff it's, it's a stupid thing in, in reality it's based in greed and selfishness uh, but that's who I was at the time I'm, I'm not going to sit here and try and bullshit you <laughs> and um, I mean I come from from a little place called Sutton in Ashfield which is not far from Nottingham City and, and I joke about this stuff. It's not actually in my set yet, but we enjoy crime, but we're shit at it, which would explain, go some way to explaining why I've spent so much time in prison. Um, <clears throat> so, so then the, the drugs didn't work. They, they worked for a bit and then they stopped working. They weren't strong enough. They weren't powerful. Enough. I built up a tolerance and I still felt awkward, clunky, disconnected and un unhappy with my own existence. Um, back in 1998 was my first prison sentence. I went away for one month. Uh, and it was it was really weird. It was like all of my smoking buddies, because we was all smoking cannabis before I went down. When I got out, they'd all turned to heroin. And I remember, and if I talk about, I just spoke about being greedy and being selfish. And I remember one Saturday, and this was this was a key point for me. This was um, my my best mate at the time. I'll call him Mister W to protect his anonymity. Um, I went, went. I used to go around to his house every Saturday with a fiver in my pocket, and we'd go and spoke. We'd go and buy a team for hash. 10 fags and go and have a smoke. And I went round to his house and he wanted to buy fives worth of smack. And I remember thinking like, well, you can bollocks. If if I'm going to watch you spend your fiver on that and then I'm going to buy a buy us a five bit rash, bollocks, get me one of them. And it was a horrible experience. Um, I felt sick. I, I went near blind and deaf. But for some reason, there was a warmth, comfort, solace or whatever within it. There must have been for me to use it again. Um, and, and unfortunately, I, mean, I, I don't know if you if you know people who've had heroin problems. It it gets you by the balls very very quickly. Mm. I was going to ask you that: how quickly yeah. does it take hold? Um, as a I from mean, a from a, a, a pass, kind of a, a want to a need. Yeah, I think because I, I was able to use it for two years before I ended up getting withdrawal symptoms because I wasn't using it every day. Mm. Um, and so between my first and my second prison sentence, I was taking it initially like once a week, then twice a week, up to maybe four times a week by the time I got my second prison sentence in 2000. Um, but by then I'd got evidence because I wasn't getting that many negative consequences. And I know that sounds ironic, bearing in mind that at that point I'm in prison when I'm saying that. Um, but I was able to justify it massively to myself and... It, it made it easier for me to pitch myself in deeper when I left prison on that sentence. I'd not contended with the issues that brought me to it in the first place. I didn't have anything that I could remotely call a life. I still didn't feel comfortable. I still didn't feel safe. I think mm. and, uh, <laughs> I projected this feeling of unsafety onto my environment, but ultimately it was me that was leading myself to a position of unsafety. And I never knew that. I didn't know how to look inside and, and see where the root of my problems was. Thankfully, I've, I've got some better understanding of that now, which is why I don't use heroin anymore, one of the reasons. Um, so then when I left prison on that second sentence, I, I pitched myself into it headlong from day one. Within two months, I knew what a, a withdrawal was. And, and it was too late by that point because heroin withdrawal is hands down the most scariest thing I've ever um, endured or looked forward to enduring um, mm. it's horrific which is why it will contribute to the kind of behavior that that you know heroin addiction to be about third hand you know the stuff that you read about in the papers yeah. it's awful um, the the sheer desperation and the sheer fear of that pain that you're going to experience if you cannot get another tenner uh, and that's all the next eight years became then a desperate chase for just another tenner just another tenner this will be it, just this one yeah 
I could never see beyond it and I could never see outside it. And, and that was just how it was. What's interesting to me from hearing you talk is that you, you've very early in this conversation, at least established in your mind, a direct link between your mental health from a young age to effectively self-medicating in this way, rather than some people maybe never make that connection or, or see the addiction first and the mental health issues later. It's for you, it's kind of a coexistence or a without one, there can't be the other by the sounds of it. Am I, am I right Definitely. to say that? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, my reality, my understanding and relationship to reality determine, is determined by how I think about it. Mm. And so it all begins and ends in the mind anyway. And so then if, if my existence isn't comfortable, then it, the answer can only be in the mind. Mm. And there can be external factors that alter that. But if I pin the answers on the external factors, I've got absolutely no chance of changing anything about it. And I'm always going to feel powerless against it. Mm. Whereas if I can find a way to be able to find reconciliation between my understanding of reality and the reality that's presented, I'm more likely to feel empowered and comfortable. Mm. That's really... That's what so, I focus my attention on. So the other, the other observation I've got, and this is going to sound as patronising as fuck, so I'm sorry if it does, but and I, I observed this when, when you came and gigged in Huddersfield, I observed this, because A, you're incredibly open about kind of who you are, where you've been, what you've done. You know, even on stage, you talk about it. But the, the thing that struck me is that you kind of, you, you, just by the way you speak, you throw out a lot of preconceptions. You actually dismiss it. You, 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 in my head, when I'm hearing you speak, you're, you're removing from me a lot of those preconceptions I have about heroin addiction, being, a, being a, someone who's been to prison, et cetera, because you, and this is where it's going to sound patronising. Um, you're clearly, you're intelligent, you're articulate, you're well-spoken, you've got a, a clarity of thought about all of this. Maybe you didn't have at the time, but when you get on stage, if I say to, if I were to introduce you as an MC and say, and now coming up on stage, we've got, you know, ex-convict, ex-heroin addict, Ian Peskett, people are going to have a preconception straight away of what they're going to get. And they're going to probably think of something like Spud from Trainspine, right? Like a real kind of cliched, you know, look at something. And then you come on and you talk in a, in a, in a way that, that I think would, it must surprise people. Is that something that, have you always been good with words? Have you always been a good communicator? Or is that something that's come to you since you've been clean? Or, or what, what's, what's the score there? I, th I think I always had the ability. I've always been articulate. Um, hmm. I, earned a, I earned a nickname through school. Um, scientific peg. I don't know where the peg bit came from, but, you know, because I used to correct teachers on their, their grammar and stuff. And hmm. I knew a lot of big words and was able to throw them about. And, because I was massively insecure in so many areas of my life, I, I put a lot of eggs into that one basket and made it clear that everybody knew that I was the smartest person in the room because it was the only position where I felt I had any power and mm -hmm. strength. Um, and I, I, can still, I can still fall into that kind of gameplay today. I can. Um, mm. I, th I think I, I, I'm massively grateful to my mum for that. Um, the, the way that I remember it or the way that I've had it told is that I was able to read a newspaper at the age of three. Um, hopefully I wasn't taking in too much of what was written in that newspaper, but the ability to do so, I, th yeah. I think, um, set off a love of words and wordplay. And, and, and it's something that, that I hearken upon quite a lot at work. Um, I mean, I work, I work in the rehab that saved my life eight years ago. And, and what, what I do is I shatter illusions. So you telling me that I'm shattering illusions, it, it, it it feeds my position anyway. And so you say it's patronising. I'm sat here like, stroke no more, stroke no more. I'm loving that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like I say, when I saw you, when I saw your set, um, and it must be, I mean, it's probably about 18 months ago now because of lockdown, but... Um, I remember I it was that, the coldest gig on the planet. Yeah, it was fucking freezing, wasn't it? Uh, they've got a new building now, so when you come back, it'll be nicer, I hope. Um, nice. But um, the... Um, I, I don't know if I... I might have said it to you at the time. It was almost like a... A feeling of almost performance poetry element of the, your delivery and your style felt there was a, a kind of a cadence and a rhythm as well as the power of the words the the delivery style was very different from like you know Anthony Williams you gig with Anthony a lot Anthony's a lot like yeah. me he's very conversational on stage he's kind of just a bit chatty um and and the, your delivery is very 
um kind of there's an, an energy and a focus to it that feels a bit different from most of everyone else's i've seen there's a, a slight uniqueness there which is great for you it's marketable for a first start um but is again is that just that's just you or was that a conscious choice when you started stand up that you had to be a certain persona a certain manner what did you do no i mean it's <coughs> One of the most valuable things that I've found of myself over the last eight years is my authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something that I greatly overlooked throughout the duration of my using in criminality. Uh, I was a chameleon. I tried to pretend to be all things to all people, leaving nothing for myself. And I paid the price for that. As much as I thought I was winning the games that I was playing at the time, the evidence speaks for itself. Um, and so I'm not trying to play up for anybody. Most of the time, I'm not even conscious there's a bloody audience there. I'm far too self-involved for that shit. Um, <laughs> so, so I just get up and speak. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I greatly value the feedback you just gave me. That's very nice. Thank you. So turning to comedy then, um, oh, just before we do, how, how long have you been clean? Eight years, did you say? Nearly. Nearly eight years. Yeah, I always yeah. give myself a little bit more. For the 1st of May was the day I entered rehab in 2013. And I was actually still pissed up when I got there, so it doesn't really qualify on paper. But fuck okay. it, I'm having it. You can stop. <laughs> you took the steps that day, that's fine. Um, so, um, and obviously, you, you've, it feels like you've turned your life around. Again, that's a bit of a cliched phrase, but you know, you know, you're speaking to me from a much better place than you would have been if we went back eight years now in, in March of... 2013 or whatever it was um you've come to comedy in the last couple of years you mentioned ultra comedy that's how i got my start up in leeds at ultra and a few others that have done this podcast have as well and i'm familiar with that so you, you've had um the guidance of a pro for eight weeks yeah. when you turned up there then at the start of that process had you any inkling of what sort of an act you would be about whether it would be Watts and all this is me or whether you'd be something else or, or was that something that you kind of arrived at during that process of let's find your I'd hate to say it find your voice but that kind of thing yeah um I mean I had no idea of of, of content or where I was going to go with it I wasn't quite sure how it was going to pan out whether I'd finish it or all that stuff you know I had fears running I did mm-hmm. and and because I couldn't immediately see the relatability between that experience and previous lived experiences, that's why I was scared. And so over the last couple of years, I've managed to find quite a lot of quite a lot of points of relatability to existing practices that help me uh, get through those fears. Uh, and and ultimately, I mean, I I don't give a shit who knows my story anymore. I've come to terms with it. And mm-hmm. and one of the biggest practices that I use at work is self-disclosure because I'm working with other addicts and addicts by their very nature feel segregated and isolated from society. Now, when we really scrutinize it, we find that the individual isolated themselves, but it's hard to accept that at first. So then what I do is I do a bit of self-disclosure just so that they know that they're not the only person that's had those experiences. And I, and I think that the ultimate point of it is, is moving back to a position of humanity. Uh, humanity is missing, you know, that people throw out these expectations that everybody bow down to their demands of who they think that they should be rather than recognising that they have their own faults. You see this on Facebook all the time. Uh, You've only ever got the two positions of any given conversation, like bipolar, polar Nuance is dead, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And and life doesn't doesn't live in the black and white. It lives in the grey areas. There are no absolutes. And so what I try to do is reduce um, those positions and, and get people to see things from a position of humanity. And so it's, uh, it's not my experiences that make me who I am, but it's how I experience those events. Mm. Because yeah. if we talk and like, well, I'm an ex-heroin addict and you're not, well, we're different people then. But if we look at it, we, when, we, when we look beneath all that stuff, we both know fear, pain, joy, yeah. love, hate. We know that stuff. And that's the stuff that makes us all people. And that's the stuff that connects us. Mm. So I just try to reach into that part of it. And I hope to some degree or another, I, I manage that. I mean, I've, I've not had too much bad feedback. I mean, I've, I've been offered guidance around tailoring some of my jokes, but nobody's left scarred for life, I don't believe. So uh, it seems to be working out there. Mm. It's the same principle that I use at work. Yeah. Do you use humour in, in your job at work? Oh, yeah, all the time. It, it's, it's, my, it's the quickest way to uh, 
penetrate past the barrier of authority because I am an authority. I mean, I do the assessments at work and, and one of the, one of my gifts in that, and this is me blowing my own trumpet, but sorry, and you can't prove otherwise, so I'm going to run with it. Uh, I have the ability to win the confidence of an addict very quickly. And so right at the start of the assessment, I'll, I'll, I'll say to them, I'll say, um, so at various points throughout this assessment, I may use some language that could be deemed coarse and or vulgar. Would that bother you? And they'll say no. And I'll say, thank fuck for that. And it immediately diffuses that tension a little bit mm. and gets them to recognize me as a human first rather than an authority. You know yourself, you face an authority and you, your heckles are, ra- heckles are raised and your defenses are up and you won't meet them as a person. Mm. So it's trying to get past all that stuff. Mm. So what, thinking about your, your time on stage then, what, um, because it, listening to that, I can tell you're proud of the job, the day job you do. Not in a not in a kind of a chest puffed out look at me kind of way, but there's is a definite. You, it feels to me like you're proud of what you're capable of doing, and you know the services, the help you can give, right? Which is fantastic. So that's fulfilling, right? I came to comedy because as much as I'm good at my day job, it doesn't. I don't come home at night warm with a glow that I'm doing a great job because it's not massively consequential. It doesn't feel massively consequential, right? Whereas, you know, you're doing great work. I've got a brother who's a doctor and my, my wife's a teacher. That's To me, that's important stuff. I work in an office doing shite all day, right? So I'm not fulfilled by my day job. It feels to me like, from the sounds of it, you're going to get some fulfillment from your day job. So what boxes does comedy tick for you? What, what does it bring to the table that you're not getting elsewhere? I don't, I don't know if it's, if, it's, um, if it supplants anything, but it definitely complements. Um, I mean, like prior to doing comedy, like, so if I peel it back when I was living with my ex, it was, I go to work, I come home, I watch shit on telly, I piss about on Red Dead Redemption, because I was massively obsessed with that at the time. Um, she had her own pursuits, and so she was fully engaged in her phone, her little glowy box. I was engaged in my glowy box. There was no real connection. There was, there was nothing to invoke any sense of passion outside of work. And, and mm. so it, it just contributed to that level of passion, engagement, connection. Um, so by extension, that became fulfilling. And I don't think I was actively seeking having that stuff by engaging with comedy. It was just a, a fancy having a go at it. And it turned mm. out I was better at it than I suspected. And, and so pursued it from that point. Right. Okay. Have you had... So it's one of the things that I've touched on with a few people is it's so I, I spoke with um, Jem Stewart, who you won't, I don't think you'll know because he doesn't gig much outside of West Yorkshire. He's, he's mainly a poet, um, but he is um, an alcoholic who is an alcohol counselor. So it's similar sort of field to what you do. Um, obviously a different, a different drug of choice, but effectively an, you know, poacher turned gamekeeper, if you like addict now counselor. Um and I was talking to him about um, he his kind of approach to addiction is pure abstinence. He you know he didn't do twelve steps. He found another way for himself. But then he has put himself into an environment in terms of comedy and performance poetry where quite often he's in the you know he's kind of a hen hen uh, in the hen house a fox in the hen house or whatever if you want to call it because he's there. There's booze everywhere. Everyone's drinking. It's part of the culture. Slightly different with comedy because I've not seen anyone shooting up at a comedy gig. They probably have occasionally after seeing my set. But um, when, but is there a is there a risk to you as an as a, an addict of being in that environment? Do you feel it comes with any risks, or is are you feeling like that's a, that's actually that wasn't your environment that put you at risk? Pubs and stuff and clubs wouldn't weren't necessarily your kind of arena, if you like. I think. Well, I mean, so I'm just flesh out a few details about about my using. I mean, heroin was my drug of choice from 1998 till 2008. I I did a prison sentence between 08 and 09, during which time I I resolved my relationship with heroin and realised I never wanted to use it again and never needed any counselling or any further help or support around that. I had a firm decision that I stuck with and I've stuck with and I've never looked back on. But like I said before, the issues that brought me to that position, I hadn't been contended with. So I left prison and I started drinking. So I did become, you could call it alcoholic. I don't choose to use that word because I wasn't physically dependent because I kept ending up in prison before I ended up becoming physically hooked. So I never went through DTs and stuff like that. So prison saved my life in reality. That's going to sound funny to the listeners. Uh, 
I mean, my, my drinking wasn't really in pubs because I always got uh, ejected before we got to that point. So I'd have a couple of pints and then I'd get rowdy and then I'd get kicked out. I was kind of overcompensating for always feeling picked on throughout my entire life. So, I mean, I wasn't really actively bullied at school. I'm not going to pretend I was. I didn't have an horrific childhood. I just didn't experience it well. Uh, and I always felt on a back foot. I always felt weak. I mean, I hung around with the bullies. Uh, yeah, I always felt like the runt of the litter and I didn't like that. I felt disempowered in my own existence. So then when I started drinking and I stopped being so fearful of violence, because that, that was the issue on that front, uh, I started pitching myself headlong into confrontation, actively seeking it. And by extension, shamefully, I ended up becoming a bully myself. Mm. Um, but, but either way, uh, I went to rehab and, and there's, there's a belief that runs in all, all addicts um, and it looks different for everybody. But the principle is the same and it's drugs make my life better. And, and that can only that that has to exist. It must do because if I look at if I look at where I was prior to going to rehab, I was in and out of jail, in and out of hospital, eating out of bins, eating out of um, homeless projects. I got no friends. I smelt like shit. My family didn't want to know me. I got no friends. And my hair was a mess. Yet somehow the bottle held the answer. And mm. like how I don't know how I came to that understanding, but that's that was my existence. And thankfully, within one week of entering rehab, that belief was shattered in me. So my relationship to alcohol, to heroin, to whatever the drug of choice has been resolved. I feel comfortable around that stuff. I've had partners who've, who've drank in my presence. It, it's not on my radar anymore like it was. Yeah. It's not like I'm white knuckling it. Um, so I, while I appreciate that sentiment, I don't, I don't feel it um, impacts me personally. I have mm. witnessed that. And, and so you mentioned the 12 steps. And like the first step is the admission, the admission that we have a problem. I'm not going to do the full version because I didn't fucking understand it for the first year. But ultimately, it boils down to I'm fucked. Uh, and after that admission, you recognize that somebody else can help you. Bam, we're, out, we're into the solution. Now I'm going to let somebody else help me through this stuff. And a lot of people in their first step, uh, the, the essence or the um, emphasis is on I can't. I can't go there because there'll be alcohol. I can't drink. And, and my first step doesn't include the word can't in it at any point. You mentioned abstinence. And mm. I work in an abstinence-based project. I am a 12-stepper that is an abstinence-based fellowship. But I promote choice. Mm. And so then when we look at choice, I'm looking at informed, educated choices. Because my, my choices were not either of those things prior to entry to rehab. Does that mean that you would now say that? Does that mean that you now would say that you choose not to drink, not that you can't drink? Then is that kind of, in a nutshell, what that equates yeah. to? Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, that, I and that empowers I cannot, you then at that stage as well. Yeah, but I cannot justify to myself anymore that that alcohol would bring anything good out of me or help me feel better in any given circumstance. I've explored the details of my drinking. I've, I've reviewed the evidence and if I'm going to simplify it, I was a twat when I was drunk. That's mm. as simple as it is. So if I don't want to be a twat anymore, I've got an answer. Don't drink. It's really, um, <laughs> you cut through it all, don't you? I suppose that's the thing. That, that, and that's, that's the thing about your comedy. It's the thing about where you're talking now is that you, there's no, albeit as, as clearly you're, a, you're someone who loves language. There's also no bullshit. There's no frills. You, you get straight to it, which I think is refreshing. Um, so, in terms of of your stuff, stuff on stage, you talk about your addiction. You talk. You mentioned that you've been in prison on stage. I remember that from your set. Um, what sort of um, feedback have you had from not from people in the industry? Because because a sometimes you got to tell it with a pinch of salt because we'll all blow smoke up each other's ass if it helps us get a gig, but. Um, from other people as well, from from the audience, which is what why we're there, or effectively what the night's about. Have you had interesting conversations after after shows with people? Have any of them said that it resonates with them, or it surprised them, or, or what? I don't think I've had I've had people identifying readily with the lived experience, but I've definitely been I've I've had appreciation shown for my level of honesty, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, but but again, it's that. People always want to throw up facades about who they are, trying to present this picture to the world. And, and that was that was the root of my issues because I was living a lie, mm. pretending to be something that I'm not, and I, a line that I use at work. If if we look at addiction, it's 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 negative in nature and it feeds off my fear. And by extension, it leaves me with a low sense of self-esteem. I have a low sense of self. How can I have self-esteem if I'm not being myself? That's the point I get to. 
So, so then, like, like I said before about authenticity, it's like I wanted everybody to like me. And when I started volunteering at the rehab, I was asked by the managing director at the time. He said, do you want to be liked or do you want to be respected? At the time, he asked me that back in 2014. I didn't, I didn't really have a clue what he was getting at, but I accepted that he had a valid point for asking that question because I understood a little bit about how he operated. And I took that question away and I realised that to be liked, I've got to do what you want. To be respected, I've just got to do me. Mm. And not yeah. everybody is going to like me, but they, they can respect the fact that I'm going to cover me, that I'm going to hold my own boundaries, that I'm going to maintain my own integrity, that I'm going to be honest with the events and the circumstances that I find myself. Mm. And I don't need I don't need everybody's approval anymore. Back when I was so shaky inside, I needed everybody's approval because I didn't know how to approve of myself. So does that extend then? Does that extend then to performance then? So, so clearly, from your when you're looking at your day job, like you say, there's kind of you can you can give them what they want or you can give them what they need, and there's a difference, and one might make you more likable than the other. In terms of of comedy, then, if you were, I don't know if you've had any gigs where it's it's just not clicked, it's not gone down well or whatever. But does that does that sort of um, armor maybe that you give yourself in your day job or that understanding of what your day job means does that give you does that make you more robust for a bad gig or if you have a bad gig is it still going to affect you what's uh, I, I, I won't lie to you and say that I have never been affected when the audience hasn't been hanging on my every word mm. uh, but but that effect doesn't last too long and it and it and I won't dilute my set just to it tends to be the older crowds. The older crowds don't get my stuff as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I did one in Melton Mowbray. I mean, I, I throw the words Melton Mowbray out and you already know what kind of crowd it's going to be yeah. there. Um, but, but, but it was that. It's, I mean, I, I did a gig in Droitwich quite early on. And I remember the t- two of the acts that went on before me uh, were so disappointed that their words weren't hung on to by everybody in the room. And like, if we scrutinise what this room was, essentially it was some like 19-year-old kid who'd asked his dad if he could set up a microphone in the pub on a Saturday in this little village. It was, it was a social hub. It mm. wasn't billed as a proper comedy gig. There were no ticket yeah. sales. To, so to have that expe- expectation that everybody is just going to listen to you was highly unrealistic. Yeah. And I was able to reconcile myself with that fact very quickly into that night. And I think there was three people who were giving me attention, so I just spoke to them three. Yeah. And that was enough for me, yeah. and that's how I was able to to bypass that. I think I think that's a thing that I've noticed about perhaps people who have come to comedy a little bit later. There's a lots of lots of great young comics out there, but they are, you know, without I'm 43, so I can say it, but without wanting to be patronising, they are still in my eyes kids. A lot of them, you know, now and and yeah. they're perhaps they are less able to be kind of pragmatic about that kind of night. I've I, when I think about my gigs and I and I say to myself I've never bombed, that's based on I've never bombed at a proper comedy night with a with a you know an, on a, a proper audience. The nights that I've found hard are the ones that aren't really comedy nights. They're awards dinner, like sports club awards ceremonies or someone like you say someone sets something up and it's on a Saturday and it's part of something else. The worst two gigs I've ever had were a, a pool club awards dinner where the captain of their big rival had died the week before just before I went on stage, they did a presentation to his family. Didn't tell me they were going to do it. And then literally just went, right, and now the turn. And I was just like, what, what do I do with that? And then the other one was, as part, it was a, like a, a music concert where they wanted some comedy in the middle for a fundraiser. And it was just like, well, these people aren't going to fucking listen. They're already having too good a time. Um, and if you take things like that out, which younger people struggle to do, in generally speaking, then, like you say, then you, you kind of, you have to, you have to weigh up the scenario of the situation before you start to worry about whether you should beat yourself up for, for being shit or not. Um, and I think that, that people who've got a maybe a, a more varied life experience, a longer life experience like yourself and I, you know, then you're able to do that. And I think that gives you kind of that natural armour because it make, it just means you're you're moving that one step away from where it needs to be to cause you any harm, I think. You're almost saying that's not really yeah. comedy. Um so that's that's interesting to me. Um, but I think I, I suppose that the thing for me that, that, that and I've touched on it a couple of times already that, that is most interesting is just that how can I put this best? You're what you're not, what you could be with your background if you were a different 
if you had a different personality, although I suppose if you had a different personality, you might not have even come to comedy in the several. first place. <laughs> but if you had a different personality or a different outlook, coming to, to live comedy, you could become a bit of a novelty, a bit of a box ticker, you know, a bit someone who's a bit patronised by the industry. You know, oh, look, we've got a recovered addict. We've got a recovered someone who used to be in prison. You know, here's a good news story kind of thing. And people could kind of patronise you in that way so that the audience could be like, oh, God, you won't guess what we saw the other night. That was a guy and he used to be a heroin addict. But we don't. I don't think you bring that to the table. I think the moment you start speaking, you you people listen and actually, and, and you take them with you. And, and I don't think that's necessarily because of your, material as much as your personality material is good but in the hands of someone else it would be maybe more average you just see what i'm saying um i think i don't know if you do or not but i think i genuinely think that that there's a risk with you being defined potentially by that history in the eyes of the audience before they've heard you speak of them thinking you're going to be a bit of a novelty like i say a bit of a spud yeah <laughs> you know think, and, you, and well, you don't bring that <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think with that, because because what I do notice with, with people talking about um, life experiences that they believe other people might not have shared, the, 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 there is the potential for them to be bringing some of their own shame to the proceedings and then trying to pretend that the shame doesn't exist. Mm. Um, and I don't do that. I've resolved my shame around the stuff. And so I'm just speaking about it matter-of-factly. So... Even the the most self-deprecating elements of my set are not laden with self-pity. Because that's the stuff that puts you on a back foot. That's the stuff that's going to get you um, looked down upon. Yeah, there's no woe is me in your act, is there? No. No. No, not at all. No. And I think that, again, I think that's the the thing that probably empowers you a bit is the the full ownership you take of of you and your, your stories. Um, for for considering the content of some of those stories, it's amazing how comfortable you put the the level of ease you put the audience at hearing them. I think, um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting skill, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Um, but it's it's like with it's like with any any comic. I mean, I I look at some of my heroes: uh, Doug Stanhope, Bill Burr, Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. Some of the content that and topics that they're able to explore so eloquently beautifully it's because they have the conviction within what it is that they're saying and they're not trying to hurt anybody mm. that, that it helps people feel comfortable to just sit with that information rather than immediately reject it from the idea of being offended mm. and because my because my set is wholly based on my experiences how could anybody be offended by it yeah. Who are they you're offended? Not, you're not for embellishing me? for you're not embellishing it to make it edgier. You don't need to, do you? So no. it's you know, um I it's think like that's people that's, can't be offended on my behalf. Yeah, exactly. And I think that again, that's what potentially stands you apart from a lot of people at certainly at our kind of level of the circuit, if you like. That level where you're a top maybe top of the bill of the open mic circuit, breaking into paid work, that kind of level. Um I think like you're not if you're edgy, it's because your life has been edgy. It's not because you're trying to be edgy because yeah. like you said the authenticity you talk about and i think that again that stands you in good stead so towards the end now um what's your aim with comedy then because you've already said that it doesn't necessarily um tick a box that wasn't already being ticked it just kind of adds to your enriched life if you like so what what is your your goal with comedy why do you do it and where do you want to take it i think i have i have i have no real desires of upping it much further from where it is. I have no art, no designs of turning pro with it because then it's a job. Then it's mm-hmm. a chore. It's not fun anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do tax returns and all that shit for it. I just like getting up there, chatting shit, getting claps and strolling off. And, and that's that's as much as I want from it. And that's mm-hmm. what I've been having from it. So it's, I mean, yeah, I'd like to have more material. I would like to get an hour show up, up and running at some point, but I'm slack as fuck when it comes to writing. So I'm still only pushing around 20 minutes. I've done bugger all writing throughout all of this lockdown shit. I've yeah. been concentrating my attention on work. So, um, But like, like I say, because, because there's no defined goal, then I'm, I'm neither meeting it nor avoiding it at present. So I feel yeah. quite comfortable with what it is that I'm doing. Um, it would be nice to get back on stage again. I've not been doing the Zoom gigs because they just feel unnatural to me. Um, 
Uh, I just can't get on with with the idea. Uh, I like real heads to bounce my ideas off rather than bouncing it through a screen. It doesn't feel natural. Um, So, yeah, I mean, get some more stuff down on paper. And I mean, I could just run my old set out anyway when the the gig's open because it's been a while since people have heard it and everybody's getting on stage and they're going to talk about COVID and fucking lockdown anyway. So I'm still going to be a breath of fresh air recycling the old stuff. So how have you found lockdown then? Because it's been a year um, now. How, How have you found it? Okay, if um, if I if I'm really honest, um, which I am, I'm I've not been I'm I'm grateful that I have not been massively impacted by it negatively. Mm-hmm. I'm not a great fan of people, so any excuse not to be around many of them at a time has been good. Yeah, uh, I've 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 been blessed in that I have some modicum of job security because I've seen a lot of the shit that people have gone through in relation to that, and I feel for them. Yeah. I do. It's been awful out there and. Uh, if, if anything, my work's going to go the opposite way because while people are disconnected and while people are shaky, then more people are going to turn to drugs and that's just a sad fact. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there, 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 has been, there has been some restrictions that I've had to uh, like reconcile myself with. You know, I'd like to see my friends more frequently than I do. Um, phone calls just don't cut it. I miss yeah. hugging people. I mm. think that's the biggest thing that I miss. Uh, and it's like even at work you know like we go through some stuff at work and and the and the one thing that i can do for an individual in that moment is give them a hug and i'm not able to do that Mm. or hugging my colleagues between shifts and we like ships in the night as well so that's 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 impacted we've not been able to get together as a full staff team because we kind of operate like a family yeah Uh, although we have we have that level of accountability that the office is always going to bring um so, yeah, I mean, it, it has had its impacts, but I don't feel it's... My sleep pattern's fucked. I know that much. My sleep pattern went bye-bye within the first two weeks of all of this stuff. Uh, th- those two words shouldn't even sit together in a sentence anymore. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Um, and So, in future, you want to get back on stage. You're not fussed where it takes you. You just want to go along for... See what happens. Is that kind of a nice summary? Yeah. That's, that's Yeah, definitely. You can't be disappointed, then. That's great. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. There's no... You're not setting yourself up for failure, which is superb. Um, last question, then. Um, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and this is a tricky one, actually, because normally I know what people... I feel like I know what people are going to say. There's only been one person who's ever surprised me, but you might do. Um, if I could wave a magic wand and take away kind of the history of your mental health issues, your addiction issues, and all of the intertwined shit that comes with that, take away those 10 prison stretches, all of that, but the price you had to pay was be that you, you'd never do comedy. What what would you say? Is that a deal? No, I'd, I'd say bollocks. <laughs> I mean, even if you take take comedy out of it, it's... <laughs> so I, I have two ways of being able to view my past. I can either view it for an angle of an acceptance or an angle of shame and regret. Um, and so if you'd have asked me that question eight years ago, I'd have said, yes, please take it all. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the fact is I've been able to build two careers off the back of my experience. What kind of comic or what kind of worker would I be without those experiences? Mm. There's, some, there's something really beautiful about recovering addicts that I've, that I've noticed is the level of uh, self-awareness and awareness that is generated having gone through those negative experiences and finding acceptance over them that I don't find in, forgive the terminology, normies mm-hmm. or muggles. I like to call them muggles. Muggle. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I think this is episode, is this 18, 19? 19. We've only had one person say yes, they would. Mm. But I thought, mate, I wondered if you might. I don't know. But then as soon as you said no, I thought, why did I even doubt him? (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. Mate, he's, um, I mean, we've chatted for nearly 45 minutes or so. I feel like we've only scratched the surface, but there's so much that you've said that is interesting to me and intriguing to me um i'm really grateful you've taken the time to speak to us and um yeah i'm <laughs> i'm grinning like a f- no one will see this because we're doing this on zoom but i'm going to put the order out something about you makes me smile i don't know what it is but you've kind of it, considering where you've been and everything like that and again it's just, i hate to sound so patronizing but you, you're an uplifting guy you're a really uplifting guy a good news story thank you i'll take that yeah. no, it's, it's been on a, on a being on it it's been nice seeing you again mate yeah, and you, man. And we listen. Gigs will be back in about in in about eight weeks, so we'll have to catch up. I've already told Anthony Definitely. I'm coming down your way, so 
we'll have to have to catch up but yeah stay safe and um never change mate <laughs> that's what i would say <laughs> thank you we need, we need more people like you which you know is is good so keep doing what you're doing man all right awesome, mate. cheers So there you have it. That was uh, that was Ian. Um, I think you'll agree. Really, really pleasant conversation with someone who um, is, you know, as I said, in, as I alluded to in the pod, um, really well-spoken, articulate, intelligent guy for whom life took some difficult turns, but he's now kind of come out the other side. He's contributing positively to society and he's contributing positively to comedy, in my opinion. Um, and as you know from previous episodes of this, we're not talking always to, often not, to fully professional comedians. Quite often it's people who've come to comedy relatively recently, like myself, in the last couple of years and and found that comedy either gives them something they didn't have, ticks a box they, they didn't have ticked before, fulfills some kind of need. Or, as Ian said, really, just adds to his enrichment of his daily life um so hopefully back next week with another episode and i haven't lined up any guests yet but i'll be uh i'll be trying to find some guests for next week um and i'll speak to you soon but take care and stay safe Sparks of Madness is hosted by Graham Rayner and is a Gag and Bone Man comedy production.